Today's episode is sponsored by Expectful, a guided meditation and mindfulness app for your fertility, pregnancy, and motherhood journey. It's easy and fun to use as well as affordable. And did you know that science shows meditation can reduce anxiety and improve your relationships? Head to expectful.com slash motherbirth for an exclusive one month free trial just for motherbirth listeners. I just remember her reading it to me and it was just the sweetest thing like not having to think about the like severity of the situation and what was what was happening and just to kind of tune out welcome to mother birth we help women awaken the confidence that is already within this is a space for vivid inspiring birth stories meaningful advice from guest experts and honest exploration of what it means to become a mother everyone. Welcome to Mother Birth Today. Laura and I are going to be chatting with a gal that reached out to us about sharing her story on the podcast and sharing the work that has come from her own story and the challenges that she's faced on her journey to becoming a mother. Um, we're going to hear today from Kate Woolley, who runs the Noble Papery. And we did, uh, I did just have to ask her how to say that word because I realized I've never said it out <laughs> loud before. <laughs> um, so Kate, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself, then we'll go from there. Sure. Um, I am 31. I am a mom to my son uh, and married to my husband. And we live in San Diego, California. Um, And I just had a very um, kind of crazy and difficult journey into motherhood. Um, My husband and I were, you know, like every other, I think, parent or couple that kind of thinks that, oh, you know, it's not going to be a a big deal. We'll just try and have a baby and have a baby and see how it goes. And uh, come to find out it was a little bit harder than we had anticipated. Mm. And there were some definite bumps and struggles um, along the way. Uh, So we started trying and um, our first pregnancy ended in miscarriage. I had a missed miscarriage at eight weeks. Mm. So we went in for our just, I think it's like your general first checkup and there was no heartbeat. There was a baby, but no, no heartbeat. Um, and so that was obviously really difficult. I went through just, you know, a ton of emotions, grief, and, um, really, really struggled with that. And in the end, I opted to have a DNC, which I recently found out was a big reason for why my next pregnancy had so many complications. Interesting. Um, Yeah. Like literally within the last six months, there's been all of these studies that have come out to kind of show that there's like this weird correspondence between the two. Mm -hmm. Um, So my husband and I took some time off from trying to start a family. And then once we did start back up again, we eventually uh, were lucky enough to become pregnant and that pregnancy was just so incredibly difficult. Mm. Um, I was essentially on bed rest from 16 weeks onward. Um, my water broke at 16 weeks. What? We, oh, yeah, yeah. Thought, thought we were going to lose, lose our son. Um, I mean, we're, I was in the hospital at that point for a week. 
Um, and you know, they did all of these tests and the, um, special, the specialist that was on duty at the time was like, you know, I want you guys to be prepared that, you know, you're, you're going to lose the baby. And at the end of the day, it's, it's your decision, but we kind of want to weigh the risks and the outcomes with everything that happens. And so they painted a very, a very grim picture for us. Um, and so they kind of said, you know, we'll give you the evening and then we'll take some more measurements in the morning and you guys are going to have to make a decision then. And, um, you know, I can't explain it as anything other than than a miracle, but my, um, my water sealed up and I mean, literally within 24 hours, they sent me home and Mm -hmm. I was kind of like, what, what are you doing? Like, I don't know if I feel really comfortable going home at this point. Can you just take care (laughs) of me, please? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Can I stay here? Um, so at that point I, I had a really incredible OB. Um, and so she was like, you know, I I think it's fine. You can go home, but I think you should be on very strict bed rest at that point. You know, we have a, we had a two story condo at the time and she's basically said, you know, you can go downstairs one time a day and upstairs one time a day and take a shower and that's it. Everything else you need to be on the couch or in a bed and not, not doing anything. And so I basically waited and was on bed rest until, 26 weeks and six days. And then on exactly 27 weeks, I woke up in the morning, um, which was also the day before I was supposed to go back to work. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, I had a really, um, intense bleed. And so we rushed to the hospital immediately and the time previous that we were in triage, it took them about four or five hours for them to fully like admit us. And within walking into triage, I was admitted within 20 minutes Mm. um, this time because it was so severe. And they basically told me, they're like, we don't know what's going on, but you have to be prepared that you're going to be here for the extent of the pregnancy. And um, I mean, that was just a really, really hard pill to swallow. Um, So I was in the hospital on hospitalized bed rest from 27 weeks until 32 weeks and three days, I think. So all in all, I think it was, I think it was exactly 40 days on, on bed rest in the hospital. But it's um, so amazing which, you made it to 32 weeks. Oh, yeah. it, uh, it's unreal. I'm sure you guys I mean, celebrated every single day. <laughs> yeah. And, and the hospital that I was in, they're absolutely fantastic. And I was on a, a high risk um, floor for high risk pregnancies. And so it was kind of like a, a little thing every Sunday, they presented you with a certificate for like the next week of gestation. Like, you know, I felt like I was a little bit like in kindergarten again or something, you know, getting an award. I'm like, oh, yay, I made it to 30 weeks. Woo. And um, we would put all the certificates up on the wall in the hospital room. But, mm-hmm. you know, it was, it was important. Every every day counted. So, um, so yeah, so I was diagnosed with... Um, a ton of conditions, actually. They said I was the most complicated, naturally conceived pregnancy that they'd ever seen on the floor. Mm-hmm. And I had my, the main, um, the main condition was called visa previa, which is when the umbilical cord, um, transverses down and implants itself into the cervix. Mm-hmm. And so basically what happens is if you go into labor, then, um, the baby, 
well, then the the membrane around the umbilical cord basically disintegrates because it's um, inserted itself into the cervix. And so if you go into labor, then the umbilical cord is at risk. And I think I read the fatality rate is like 98% if you go into natural labor with basophobia. So um, we were very, very high risk. Um, I also had a bilobed placenta and what had caused the bleed was a placental abruption. And I had also had a cervix on, or I'm sorry, a cyst on my cervix that had ruptured, which likely caused the placental abruption. And then, uh, yeah, it just, there was just so many, so many complications and so many issues. So they, um, they were like, yeah, you're staying here yeah, until there's no, there's no way with all that going on that you could even, you know, that just have, it'd have to be so closely monitored. Completely. Yeah. yeah. It was, it was totally insane. And they, um, you know, they were very adamant, like we're going to keep you here if you can make it until 36 weeks. And after that, there's like, we'll do a C-section. Mm-hmm. Um, and they monitored me, I think it was three or four times a day. I would be on the monitor for an hour. Um, and it, it was basically to check contractions. And I mean, I was, I was essentially in labor for the entire time that I was in the hospital. Mm-hmm. So I was on, um, nifedipine, uh, pharmaceuticals, which is actually, um, for lowering blood pressure, I mm-hmm. believe, yeah. but it also has an in- indication for, um, for stopping or delaying contractions. So I was on, I was on that every four hours around the clock for 40 days. Um, and then I believe it was like th- exactly 32 weeks, which our OB was really great. She was like, if you can make it to 32, that's like a really big gestational age in terms of NICU care. Mm. Um, and so it was like the sun, it was Super Bowl Sunday and my family came to visit and they were in our, um, in our room. And, you know, the nurses just told me afterwards, they're like, a lot of times when family comes to visit, it causes just like additional stress that you may not even know is happening. Um, and so by the end of that night, I was in, like full blown labor. Like I was having contractions. I think it was like every three or four minutes. And so Mm -hmm. they like pulled out all the stops, um, gave me the, uh, maximum allotted doses of nifedipine and also, um, terbutaline, a shot of terbutaline, which is supposed to initiate the fight or flight syndrome. And so that like stops labor in a trap in its tracks. Mm -hmm. However, there's like a lot of risks that are associated with that. Um, and so I was monitored at that point like there was a nurse just in my room for the next two hours, like consistently monitoring me and taking my blood pressure every 15 minutes. So it was, it was really intense. And I was put back on um, magnesium sulfate at that and IV for that at that point, um, which also um, is to protect the baby's brain and, and help delay labor. And then, so I stayed on that for an additional 72 hours and then when they finally took me off, I think it was like four hours after taking me off the mag that I was just in, like having really, really close contractions again. And they just, they called it. They said, you need to call your OB. You need to have C-section. Baby's coming today. And so that was at like four o'clock in the morning. So I waited. I waited for two hours to call my husband. I was like, I'm going to let him just have two more <laughs> hours of sleep at home <laughs> before, before we call him. And, uh, and so, yeah, so he, he then rushed to the hospital and we had our son, which was incredible. I mean, totally crazy. Um, 
the C-section was, was really intense. And, um, as soon as they started surgery, actually, um, my placenta, like fully just fully just gave out. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, so they, um, delivered my son and then he was taken into NICU and then we spent an additional 34 days in NICU um, before before we were able to come home as a family of three. So it was, um, yeah, it was just a crazy, totally crazy experience to say the least. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. I feel I feel like even just the way you share those things, like you're just sort of like, like, you know, rattling off intense scenario and, and condition after intense scenario or condition. And it's, you know, really, I'm sure, I'm sure it's surreal for you to look back on that and realize like, oh shit, like that was, I'm I'm sure you knew it was serious at the time, but like, wait a second, like that was a lot that was really intense. And yet you detach yourself from it on so many levels, like, like we all do from, from trauma or from, you know, the things that, that causes pain. Um, so I, I wonder, Absolutely. you know, as you're, as you're sharing those things, how are you feeling, you know, emotionally mm-hmm. and physically, you know, what was your experience of, of that initial moment where, you know, your water broke and you must have, like you said, just assumed, okay, this is it. We're having another miscarriage. Um, and, and then, you know, moving forward into being on bed rest and having sort of this really, really high level of intervention and monitoring that just kind of puts you in this situation of having to accept that this is not like going to happen normally or, you know, physiologically. How did that all feel for you? Yeah, I mean, I there was such an array of emotions. I mean, I was so... I was so naive at the start of it that, you know, when my water broke, I stupidly thought, oh, okay, we're going to have the baby now. Like I didn't, it didn't even like cross my mind that there's like a threshold of like time of when the baby is viable. And so I was at 16 weeks. So I, you know, and viability starts at 24. I mean, really they'll attempt to save save the the baby at at 23 in some situations but really 24 Mm -hmm. is kind of the the threshold for that so I mean it was like a massive rude awakening when I went to the hospital and realized like oh wow okay this is this is not this is not normal and this is we are like really in some serious danger and then you know I think that first week in the hospital really unfortunately like prepared me for being then in the hospital for the longest time. And I really, I remember telling my husband because they had, they had told me, they're like, you could be here for the remainder of the pregnancy. They told me that at 60 weeks. And this was like in October, it was like right before Thanksgiving, which is like, you know, my favorite holiday. And, and so I I said to my husband, I like, just looked at him. I was like, I can't, I cannot do the holidays in the hospital. Like I, I just physically will not be able to handle it. Like I just can't. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, literally at home for Thanksgiving and Christmas. Like when I was back in the hospital, it was January 3rd. Like, so I was literally out of the hospital for what I feel like is the amount of time that like I personally needed to Mm -hmm. like get through this. And then when I went back in, it was like, I one had been prepared for having been in the first time. And then two, to your point, I just like, I, I a little bit like detached myself 
from what was going on. I think I also like threw myself into learning every possible like medical term and and like the kind of science and medicine behind what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I mean, I think now I just I know I know even so much more about pregnancy than just probably the average mother just because of what <laughs> what we've we've been through yeah um, you use yeah. you're using words like t- terbutaline <laughs> yeah. and I do I yeah. do think it's worth saying too Kate and this like you you said this so well it wasn't just one thing you know for people listening if you can have a picture of kind of what it's like in a pregnant in a pregnancy the the responsibility of the uterus is to establish the placenta at the top and to put all of the vasculature and all of the stuff that, that's really dangerous at the very, very top. And then for your cervix to be free of cysts and to remain long and firm. And most people who have preterm labor, it's a, it's a flip of one of those two systems. Either the vasculature is doing something different, your water breaks, or in, in your cervix is, is not, you know, cooperating, not staying thick and long, right? Mm-hmm. And so totally. as Kate is explaining her story, you know, having the vasculature that's connected to pregnancy, that's the placenta, the cord, how it attaches, where the vessels are at the lower part of your uterus is extremely rare. And it's extremely rare, like she said, to have a vasa previa and, and to actually have a, a baby that is born alive. Yeah. And so in some ways, like having the extra monitoring from having your water broken might have, you know, it might have saved your baby's life in the sense of you had a lower threshold for coming in. And, you know, I mean, you were being monitored totally. and you were almost more aware than maybe the regular mom would be. And Kate did an excellent job of explaining all that. But I think that that is something you don't think about when you think about kind of, you know, most people at 16 weeks are starting to tell their families, maybe telling totally. like friends and starting to plan what happens, you know, so many months from now. But when you get that, yeah. you know, when you have something like this happen, you know, the end of your pregnancy starts then you're already thinking, you know, especially in that inpatient environment when you are, they're just trying to keep you pregnant and give you medicine and telling you every day, like you said, celebrating with certificates because the reality is you're hoping to keep your baby inside so that your baby can grow stronger. And I think that's just such a different experience of pregnancy. Obviously that's, that's what every woman hopes to, to help their baby grow strong and healthy while they're pregnant. But when you have this, I don't know, it's almost like, there's like a shadow that's you're just waiting for something, the next thing to drop in a way that other people don't have to do. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think to your point, like I, I lost like that, that almost that sense of innocence with pregnancy. Like I felt like there were so many things that like emotionally, I just wasn't able to have, Mm -hmm. um, which I mean, sounds, I mean, it sounds selfish, um, you know, thinking about it now, but like, you know, we didn't have like a baby shower and, you know, our family and friends coming to visit, like when I was pregnant, like that was in a hospital room. And, you know, so it just, we didn't have the normal, the normal quote unquote, normal pregnancy. Um, and I think like it definitely jaded me in terms of like what, what other women are, are able to experience. And I think, unfortunately, so many times we take it take it for granted of, of like people getting pregnant and like, it's this easy thing and carrying a baby to term. Like there are just, I became acutely aware that there are so many things that have to go perfectly right for a baby to come into the world and to come into the world healthy. And I, I feel like we just lost so much of that when, when I was pregnant. And I mean, it just wasn't, it wasn't even like, 
oh, you know, your baby's going to be preterm and be NICU. Like we knew all of that, but there was also this other risk that like he wouldn't even survive. And so I think it just, it changes your outlook. There's, I, I mean, it just changes, it changes how you feel about all of that. And I mean, I can, I can easily talk about it now because I'm, I'm past it. I mean, my son's mm-hmm. two and a half now. And, but even thinking back to that, like there were so many people that were like, how did you do it? How did you get through it? And I'm just like, I, I didn't have a choice. Mm-hmm. Like right. it wasn't, it wasn't like I had a choice to, to not do that or to not go through with it. And like, I'll be the first to say, like, I had horrible days. Like I had horrible days where I was just like an absolute wreck and I cried my eyes out the whole time. And, you know, the first week or two that I was in the hospital was, I don't want to say like a honeymoon kind of time, but it, it definitely was not like your, the normal rest of the 30 days or whatever that I spent in there. I mean, my husband was, was able to take a a little bit of time off work, thankfully, but you know, after that, it kind of went back to like business as usual for lack of a better term. And I was alone for most of the days without with the exception of seeing, you know, my, my nursing staff that would come in. So it was, it was really lonely and isolating and, and difficult. And, you know, it, it just, it just makes me kind of think obviously differently about, about pregnancy. That's, that's the part, you know, that's why I asked you that question because, you know, it's, it's so important for women to hear that part of it, you know, and, and the, the vast, vast majority of women are not going to have a situation even remotely as challenging as yours. You know, the, the stuff you dealt with in your pregnancy are conditions that are really rare. And so for people listening to this, you know, also know that, uh, Laura mentioned that too, but yeah, I think totally. that, you know, we, we can really, like you said, like people ask you, how did you get through it? And I've certainly been asked that, you know, particularly about my losses. Um, and I think that there's almost like this weird assumption that if you got through it and you're like, you know, you sort of live to tell the tale and you're talking about it, that that means it was okay. And it's like, no, just yeah, like it wasn't as right. Like, you exactly, like be, just because I got through yeah. it doesn't mean it went well. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. It's kind, and that's I think that's the part that we have to talk about. Like we also have to talk about how yes, we're on the other side, and yes, like humans can undergo incredible tribulation and and you know not only survive but but really like grow stronger. But also, it's incredibly incredibly difficult, and and you have so many moments in that in those days where it's like I don't actually know if I'm going to get through this. And, and it's, it's really, truly what you said, like the fact that you don't have a choice is what gets you through in some weird existential way, you know, cause you would, if you could choose, you would literally walk out the other door. You'd be like, okay, n- no, <laughs> I, I, un- yeah, I unsign yeah, up for this. <laughs> yes. And Kate doesn't know this, but I have also worked on a parent called the perinatal specialty care unit. So this is a unit yeah. as a nurse, yeah, where yes, you're you. taking care of these moms. And we used to, we would call women like you our residents because you live there. Yeah. <laughs> you're not just visiting totally. for hours. Um, and I do remember I have this really, and I, I always think of this when I think of people who are going inpatient during pregnancy. We had a really bad flu season in Oregon and people were dying of the flu. It was very, very serious. And so, of course, the hospital made 
their flu precautions, which meant over, you know, November, December, specifically with your holiday months you're talking about, no one under the age of 12 could come and visit. And um, you couldn't have more than one visitor at a time. And so we petitioned and petitioned because we have women who have other children. Yeah. And so you're saying as long as they're here, they can't see their children. (laughs) <laughs> like we're like it's it's not the same as someone who's in the hospital like recovering from a heart like a uh, heart surgery or yeah. who's in you know inpatient because they have respiratory illness like this woman lives here she has to live here because her water's broken and she's 19 weeks pregnant but she's healthy yeah. and you know obviously we don't want anyone else to be at risk for being exposed to the flu or getting you know getting sick but we're like this this person will be here for months. Like we can't ask them not to see their kids for months. You just don't think it's that perspective. You just don't understand until you know someone who's gone through it or, you know, you went through it yourself of that idea of, you know, or even just your, your husband can't stay out of work. He has to go to work. Yeah. So you can't yeah. your bedside for three months. No one can, you know, and yeah. I, I, we always ask, you know, especially when you have a unique story, like, is there anything people did that really, what really, blessed you in that time made you feel really supported like that people did well when you're going yeah I mean I will say totally yes um I mean we were pretty we were pretty um tight-lipped about it like I we just didn't know what was going on and so I didn't feel comfortable like you know sharing on Facebook or sharing on Instagram or whatever on social media so really like the people who knew about what was going on were really like our close family and friends and Um, I mean, they just totally, they totally rallied around us. Like there was, there was a group of people, my husband and I work at actually at the same company, which is crazy. Um, but so, and we've been there for quite a while. And so there was a group that did, um, almost like a meal tree. Um, they did that for when I was on bed rest at home because I couldn't cook and I, I love to cook. And so they knew like, oh my gosh, Kate's at home and she has to sit on the couch. Like this must be driving her absolutely Mm -hmm. mad. And so Hey, for like, I think it was like a week and a half, like there were different people at work that volunteered different days and they came and drove 25 minutes to drop off food for my husband and I. And like, it was just the most incredible blessing of something that like, again, you just kind of, you just kind of forget about like the ease of being able to get up and walk around and like make yourself a sandwich during the day. Like if you're at home and and sick or whatever, like you know, I wasn't able to do any of that. And so like every morning, my husband would like pack me this little cooler, like right next to the couch and I would have waters or whatever snacks in it. Um, but like, I remember that just being such a blessing and I never felt, I never felt like okay enough to admit like that we needed the help and to tell these people like, Hey, we would totally appreciate like some meals. Like, I think that just as somebody who's going through that, like, that's a really hard thing to admit mm-hmm. that you need help. And so it was just amazing that these people just kind of took it upon themselves to be like, Hey, you know what? We see that you guys are like really going through a tough time and we're going to help you out in any way possible. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't even like, it wasn't even a question. It wasn't like, Hey, would you guys appreciate some meals? It was like, Hey, by the way, don't plan dinners for Monday through Friday. And then also Saturday and Sunday or, or what have you like, here's the meal tree and somebody's going to be by the house at six o'clock every day to drop off, drop off dinner for you. And, and I just remember thinking like, it was just the most kind gesture that that could have been done at the time. And I know that that carried into when I was in the hospital, I mean, people would, people would like just drop in and visit and they would do it unannounced. And 
I almost felt like that was it. That was like such a big highlight of my day. You know, like I, I was so schedulized when I was, if, if that's a word, when I was mm-hmm. in, in the hospital of like, you know, every single day breakfast came at eight 30, it was such and such food. And then, you know, I would like get up and wash my face and put in my contact lenses and get back into bed. And then, you know, I would like, well, I actually was lucky enough to be, to be working when I was there. So I I was working remote, which I think helped me not, not go insane. Um, but then, you know, I would know that lunch was at a certain time and that dinner was at a certain time. And so when friends would drop by, um, you know, and they wouldn't tell me it would just like, it would totally just like brighten my day and, and make it seem like, like it was normal and like I wasn't living in a yeah, confined the, room. The spontaneity of it. Totally. Yeah. And and I remember um in fact one of my really close family friends, she came and brought like a care package and she brought like, you know, some onesies, some like preemie onesies and some bedding and she brought um she's she was a teacher and so she brought a children's book and I I just Oh, it's going to make me cry. I just remember her reading it to me. And it was just the sweetest thing. Like not having to think about the like severity of the situation and what was, what was happening. And just to kind of tune out for a minute and think that like, Oh, this is normal. Like Mm -hmm. this is something she would totally do on any given day just to come and, and sit with me at home and, and read a story to my son. Like it was just, it was like one of the most special things that mm. I think anyone did for me when I was in the hospital. That's so beautiful. Oh, I'm <laughs> so sorry. Okay. No, it's okay. I, I think it's hard, you know, we, in any space, you know, whether it's a lost space or a space where people just don't really know how to, like you said, how to kind of be normal about the situation that's going on. We always talk about people moving closer and, really doing normal things like asking you how, how the baby's doing what are you guys what are your plans for when you go home but I think you know people kind of hold their breath in those instances yeah. because they don't know the right thing to say or the right yeah. thing to do um but I love that story because that's just something that anyone would do for their friend who's having a baby totally yeah yeah I mean and and I felt I mean it wasn't just her there were uh, my college roommates too were incredibly incredibly supportive during the time and they were some of the only pe- they were some of the only people who didn't live in San Diego that knew about what was going on apart from like extended family and and even then like they just supported me in really small ways like i remember my one girlfriend is like what are you doing are you, are you just like going mad like sitting there in your hospital room all day she's like do you play yahtzee and i was like what and so she made me join this like app I mean it's like words with friends but Yahtzee and so we would play Yahtzee and and go back and forth and you know she she's a teacher she's a a kindergarten teacher and so she would like in between her her periods or her classes or whatever she would like hop on the app and play Yahtzee and then you know would text me I just finished it's your turn and and so it was it was kind of cool to do that too because even now you know we go sometimes like weeks without speaking to each other and so it was just this like little reassuring thing of like, Hey, I'm your friend. I'm here for you. I know, I know you're going through a shitty time. And like the least I can do is 
is roll dice yeah. on my phone and play Yahtzee. Well, it's crazy how, <laughs> how you can look forward to things like that, especially if you're doing it with a friend. You know, it's like you just get so excited to see the totally. notification that, you know, someone you're you're playing a game with has you know taken their turn and now it's your turn again it's it can be I I I hate to think of what I would get into if I was on bed rest I would probably like rack up some ridiculous (laughs) online poker (laughs) situation no you would just play whatever like live action role games are do they they still Star Trek uh, game. (laughs) I would I would do I would do ridiculous things I ate a lot of Girl Scout cookies. It was unfortunately Girl Scout season. And there was just like, I'm not even joking, like a gigantic box of like any type. They would be at the hospital. Like at the foot of my bed. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, oh, I love this. But I also just don't love this at the same time. (laughs) Okay, we're going to take a moment to hear a little bit more from this week's sponsor. Okay, so today's episode is brought to you by Expectful, a guided meditation and mindfulness app for your fertility, pregnancy, and motherhood journey. And last week on March 5th, we did a special episode with one of the co-founders of Expectful where we talk about how beneficial meditation is no matter where you're at on the journey. So if you head over to expectful.com slash motherbirth, you can get an exclusive one-month free trial for motherbirth listeners. And if you sign up using that link, motherbirth will also receive a small commission. So we thank you so much for your support. If you join this month in March, you can also participate in our 30 Days of Mindfulness this where we're going to be sharing our own experiences of exploring meditation. We're going to do check-ins with you. We're going to actually have some live guided meditation and we're going to do Q&As. That's all going to be via Facebook Live. So if you head over to the show notes of this episode on the blog or connect with us on Instagram and Facebook, you'll be able to see more details on how you can participate in that. So again, head over to expectful.com slash motherbirth and sign up for your free trial so you can start meditating and participate with us in our 30 days of mindfulness. Let's get back to our conversation with Kate. So Kate, I'm really curious in all of this, you're talking kind of about how your community is supporting you. You've mentioned a few ways that your husband supported you. How did this time, I mean, this is like, you know, from 16 weeks through 32 weeks, plus you experienced a miscarriage before. How, how did all of this affect your relationship with your husband? Oh my gosh. Um, Well, I think the miscarriage in general was super, super difficult on us. Like, and I I don't want to like paint it lightly that like we survived it and went through it. Like I, I really struggled and I, I just think that there was this, I don't know if it was like a lapse in communication or what have you, but we really went through a, a rough patch in that because we one didn't feel, we didn't feel confident at the time, like telling anyone or sharing that situation with any anyone so like literally my husband and I just kind of kept that to ourselves we didn't tell either one of our families or anything um and I think I think it drove a bit of a wedge Mm -hmm. between us to be honest um I think I just experienced this like huge insurmountable wave of grief Mm -hmm. and and I almost was like angry with him that he wasn't grieving in the way that I was. And, 
And I also think it's different for couples at that time. Like, I mean, I, uh, you know, we lost the baby at eight weeks. And I think, you know, up until then, I had built this like little relationship with this baby, but I had built it in my head, you know, like I didn't, I hadn't shared all of these feelings with my husband about how I felt so connected to this child and all of these things. And I think losing that, like losing a baby for a woman is just innately different than it is for a man. And there's nothing wrong with that. I just think there are differences in it. And so I know that we had a lot of conversations about, about those differences and about, um, you know, how we dealt with the situation. And I, I ended up, um, going to grief counseling because I just, was I just like spiraled into this downward depression um, that I just felt like I couldn't get out of. And so I sought help um, for that. And, you know, I think we eventually came out of it. Um, I, you know, I, I do think it like definitively changed our marriage, not in necessarily a good or a bad way. I just think mm. we saw things differently after that. Um, and then on the flip side, like I've never in my life felt so close to my husband as I did when we were in the hospital and specifically when we were in, in NICU. Um, I mean, it's crazy. His, his sister actually, um, had preeclampsia with all three of her, of her, of her children. And her first was born at, at 24 weeks. So it was so bizarre, but like my husband had already been through this. So it was like, he was so prepared for all of it when, when we were going through it. And, and I mean, as prepared as, as you can be, I think. Um, but you know, like they took him on a tour of the NICU. I wasn't allowed to go obviously cause I was on bed rest, but they took him on the, on this tour. And apparently that's like very commonplace for parents that are, um, that are knowing that they're going to have a child in NICU. And he, was obviously just like very comfortable in it. And I remember the social worker who gave him the tour kind of like questioned it. She was like, I, you're weirdly like, okay with all of this. And he's, he was kind of just matter of factly like, well, I've, I've a little bit been through it before. My, my first nephew was in, um, in the hospital for over a year. And, um, so he was just very familiar with it. And I think, I think that really helped and supported me during my time. I mean, he couldn't, he obviously couldn't be there for all of the time that I was on bed rest, but he was as supportive as he could be during that. And then, you know, during NICU, I think he just calmed so many of my nerves. Like I was always just like so afraid to like touch our son and hold our son. And I just felt like he was this tiny little fragile thing that like, if I picked him up in a weird way, I was going to break him. And, and my husband would just like, for lack of a better term would kind of like throw him around and you know act like he was just like a term baby and I would look at him like oh my god what are you doing like he's like he's fine he's he's okay and it was just because he was so comfortable with the situation and I and I just think that that was like such an incredible blessing to me and and to what we went through like it just it just helped me so much to get through that and and I think it ultimately just like made us stronger um you know, to go, to go through that together and to see each other struggle in different ways and to, to build each other up from, Mm. from those situations. Yeah. It really sounds like your husband, it, it works well for him to have experienced something. And even though it can be really challenging, he, he can really like assimilate those lessons and those experiences as he, moves forward. How long of a break did you guys take between your miscarriage and when you got pregnant again? 
Um, gosh, I think it was probably, probably four or six months. I can't, I can't remember exactly. Um, but I think ROB was like pretty adamant that we take at least like three, like a three cycle break. So like after the DNC, I needed to like wait for like my first period to come back. And then she said after that, I believe it was like three more. So I think, yeah, I think it was four or six mm-hmm. months. I think we might've waited a little bit longer. Um, like I think more, more along the lines of six, just because, you know, it, it's not just the physical aspect of it, but like the mental aspect of having to like kind of open yourself up to that situation again. And to, to know that like, it might not work out. It might, you might not get pregnant. You might get pregnant and you might lose the baby again. Like there was just so many like emotions and things that I personally needed to overcome. So I just remember like, I think even when we were like given the quote green light or whatever to, to start trying again, I think I was just like not into it. I was like, no, mm-hmm. I just need more time. Yeah. Well, it's so important that you listen to yourself. I mean, I think people, the spectrum of when people are ready is so wide and there's, you know, obviously there can be, you know, physical or medical factors that weigh into that, but leaving those out of it, like just the emotional range is so wide. And I think that it's so important that women just listen, you know, totally just listen to when, when you feel ready. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and I, I think even when I, we started again, I don't know if I necessarily like felt super comfortable with it. Like it definitely took a couple of months to like really feel like, okay, like, okay, we're trying and and we're back in this situation and, and really feel like comfortable. I mean, I don't even know if I ever really truly felt comfortable to be honest with you after that. I mean, I just, I just think miscarriage and losing a child just, just changes you and changes your outlook on, on starting a family. So I, yeah, I just, I just think it took a bit of time to get past that. Yeah. It's such a, such an incredibly challenging thing to process because it's just not something outside of you. It's inside of you. And, and so you can't separate it from yourself or your experience, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about when your son was born. He was born via C-section on that day where it was like, okay, we can't, we can't stop this from happening, you know, and knowing that you had the, the vasa previa that, you know, just, you wouldn't be able to tolerate labor. He wouldn't be able to tolerate labor. Um, how did, so you get prepped for the C-section? What happens after that? Yeah. So they, they prepped me and I, I had a really um, different relationship with ROB. I mean, truly like she was just an absolute God, godsend. I, I don't know how the woman did it, but she visited me every single day. I was in the hospital for 40 yeah. days. I mean, it was, it was just unreal. And so she, she told me, she said, you know, when, when this ever happens, like, here's my cell phone number, like I'm, I'm going to be the one to deliver your baby. And so I remember like the nurses called it at, I think it was like 4am and they knew that she would be she wasn't technically on call until six. And so they're like, we're going to just try our hardest mm-hmm. to keep you kind of going and stable until 6am. And like at 559, we're going to call her. And so, um, so they basically kept me stable. And then like at six, they called her and they started prepping me um, at that point. And I can't even remember 
I think it, like everything was just in such a blur at that point. Like I remember them telling me, okay, now it's time to call your husband. Now it's time to do this. And I remember like, I wasn't even allowed to like go to the bathroom before, before the C-section. And I remember really having to pee and they were like, no, like, no, you're not allowed to, you're going to have a catheter. And I was like, oh, oh no, no, I don't like, no, I'm not okay with that. (laughs) And it just like, was like too bad. You're, you know, getting the wheelchair. We're going. And, uh, and so, yeah, I remember, um, they then wheeled us down to, uh, delivery. And so they took me in, uh, and so they, they prepped me separately. Um, and so I had to have a spinal. And I think when that happens, they like, just don't want anyone else in the room except for healthcare professionals. So like my husband wasn't there. And I remember, um, my OB, she's just the best. She, uh, she was like, okay, honey, you have to lean forward. And so she's like, so I just want you to give me a really nice hug for like, you know, a couple minutes. Oh. <laughs> and so I just remember she just hugged me while the anesthesiologist, um, gave me my spinal. And, and I just remember that moment being really lovely. Um, and just kind of like taking a break from like the craziness to kind of yeah. just take to just be human. Know. Yeah. And, and like, she just, at that point in time, she just, she wasn't a doctor, you know, like she treated me like, like a friend and she didn't treat me like her patient. And, um, and then, yeah, like we just went into it. And I think from the start of surgery to when my son was actually out, I think it was like three and a half minutes. I mean, they like didn't mess around. Um, and I remember she, she was like, okay, okay, honey, look over, look over the, um, the barrier. Like they had a, a the sheet or partition up. And so she like quickly, quickly held, held my son, um, above the, above the sheet. And I just remember like hearing him cry and having this like surreal thought go through my brain of like, whose baby is that? <laughs> like, why is there a baby in here that's crying? And then kind of like realizing, I mean, at that point I, I was like on, on so much medication and painkillers and everything that I think I just wasn't like in the right state of mind. But I remember thinking like, why is there a baby crying in here? And then her, her lifting it over the sheet and being like, look, your son, your son is here. And, um, and my husband snapped a quick photo and then like immediately they just took him and put him, um, on like the, I forget what the actual bed is called, but the, the NICU, um, the NICU bed and the NICU team kind of swooped in. And then at that point, um, my husband kind of like said a quick goodbye and I went, off into recovery and, or no, I'm sorry. My, they took my son off into NICU and my husband went with him and that's when they kind of finished up the surgery, sewed me up. And then I was taken to recovery and then my husband came up. I think it was like an hour or an hour or two later. And I mean, I, I was so, I was just so out of it at that point. It could have, I mean, it could have easily been like three minutes. I wouldn't have known, (laughs) but, um, but yeah, so it was, it was really intense and it, it just went really quickly because it was just such a high risk situation that they, you know, I think a normal C-section they had told us was like anywhere from like 30 to 45 minutes and, and, you know, and they kind of take their time getting the baby out. And this was just like, yeah, no messing around. He was, he was out with them. Yeah. I think three and a half or four minutes from the start of surgery. Wow. So when did you get to hold him first? Um, so, oh, I take it back before they wheeled me into recovery. They took me down to NICU in, I was in my, my bed. Um, 
they wheeled me down into NICU. And so I wasn't able to hold him, but I was able to see him and touch him. And I touched his finger and he grabbed my finger and we have pictures of it. And I'm just, I was just an absolute wreck sobbing and crying and and everything. Um, but that was only for, I think I saw him for maybe 10 minutes and then they took me up into recovery. Um, and then really I wasn't able to hold him. I think for probably close to a week, it was a long time. Um, it was a lot longer than, than we had thought. Um, he was in, I don't want to say critical condition, but you know, he, he was thankfully his, his lungs were developed enough. I was able, because I was in the hospital for so long, I was able to have steroids and a steroid injection. Um, which is supposed to promote mm-hmm. the growth of the lungs and the baby, which is typically, I believe, one of the last things to develop. Um, and so when he was when he was born, they had said, like, it'll be really impressive if he's able to be on room air, but he's going to end up being on some sort of um, CPAP or, or ventilator for for part of it. And so he, he was thankfully on room air, but he he had like, you know, a ton of wires and an IV in and all of these things. Um, and so it just wasn't safe for him to be held at that point. So we had to wait for his uh, ventilator to come off. I, think, I forget what the terms are now. It's been so long, but there was like a step down period of when they removed the like major ventilator and put the smaller one on can cannula, I think it's called. Um, and they had to rem. <laughs> they had to remove his um, IV and put it, it was in, uh, originally in the umbilical cord. And then when that fell off, they put it in, um, in, in his arm. And then uh, when that all happened, uh, then they kind of gave us the okay to hold him. And I remember that just being like, oh, it was just the craziest feeling to like know that this baby is here and that he's yours and that you basically have to like stare at him behind the glass kind of wall for all that time. I mean, I could like touch him and touch his, touch him and touch his fingers and everything, but not, I mean, you know, you can't pick him up. And when you have a baby, you just you want to hold him. You want to cuddle him and squeeze him and tell him you love him. And, and yeah, so we just, we kind of had to wait to do that. Um, yeah. That would be so, so hard to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, I think it really, you know, whenever we hear stories of women who have had NICU stays or, you know, been separated from their babies, you know, right at birth, there's just this, I mean, it's just so, it's such a biological imperative to have that connection and that, that touch and that sort of like completion, you know? Um, and it's, you know, you can just hear it. You can just hear it in women's voices when they tell these stories. It's like, you know, you're, you're so full of gratitude for, for the care and the availability of that care for your son and, you know, everything that led up to him being delivered safely. But it's like, there's still this grief of just not being able to, to have that, that access, you know? Totally. And, and I mean, it's, it's hard to think of it this way, but I remember just also feeling like, you know, like a little bit like I failed, like I wasn't able to like bring him to term. And I mean, I was never going to bring him to term, but even to like what 
the doctors were considering term at the time being 36 weeks. Like I even just felt like, you know, if I could have just made it to 36 weeks and he would have come out and he would have still been in NICU and I would have been able to basically pick him up and hold him. And it was just this like, you know, it was almost like a slap in the face of like, okay, you need to wait 40 days in a hospital. And then you also need to wait an additional seven before you can even pick up your baby. You know? Yeah. Like, well, you can see right. and hear him, <laughs> yeah, but not touch completely. him. Yeah. No touchy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Man, I really can't imagine. It was just, it was so surreal. Yeah, I really, I really bet. So when you went home, what was that like? So, um, so I was discharged. Um, I, I think I had five additional days in, uh, like on the recovery floor or like normal, like delivery floor. I was on somebody's floor. I can't remember. <laughs> Keep them all straight. Um, but I think I had five days of recovery which was, which was great because basically we were like essentially living at the hospital and could just walk down to the NICU and go back and forth as many times during the day as we wanted. And then going home, I remember like just brought an entire slew of emotions. Like I went back to our house and I went back to our house that I hadn't seen in like 40 days. And it was just like the craziest thing. And I mean, I was, I was just a wreck. I was an absolute wreck and God bless my husband. He was so supportive and was just like, it's okay. Like you can cry. You can be upset. You can be however you want to be. Like this has been really hard. And I think, I think not only just like being away for that amount of time from like your home and your bed and all of the things that like you call your own and find normal. Like, I think it was also this like realization that we were coming home without our son and at that point, like we had no idea, like how he would, how long he would be in there. And the doctors were, were pretty blunt with us. They were like, you know, if you're able to take him home before his due date, which I think his due date was in April, beginning of April, they were like, it'll be, it'll be incredible. So we at least had like that kind of like, quote unquote, mile marker, if you will, like yeah. kind of in front of us. But even then, like, I mean, I think when I was when I was discharged, it was like middle of February. So we were thinking, Oh my gosh, like, I can't imagine like two months of, of this essentially, you know, of having to go to the hospital every day. And we were thankfully really fortunate enough to live really close to the hospital. We were like 10, 15 minutes away, which was, which was great. So we would go a couple of times a day, but you know, it was really, it was really apparent because we would meet other families, you know, in the elevators going down to the, going down to NICU. And I remember this one woman who had delivered early and she had twins. And so she was like, just begging the hospital to let her stay for as long as, as they would allow, because she lived an hour away from the hospital and her and her husband only had one car. Mm, I I mean, he had to work. (laughs) Yeah. It's just impossible. Like, I don't actually know how, people do it yeah and and I remember just talking to her about it and like my heart just broke for her and and I just felt like so fortunate at the same time and also just like so sad that this is like something that just goes on and that there's just there's just no like solution for like I I mean like how do you even go about like planning for that you know like you, you can't like you would never think oh okay well my child's might be a NICU. So I need to like plan 
to find a ride or plan to find whatever. Like I, I, I just don't even understand like how, how you go about that. You know, I mean, obviously you just have to figure it out, but like, it's just so sad that that is the reality for people that like they either have to go to the hospital and then literally be there all day and wait for their ride so that they can see their child or they have to not see their child. Like what kind kind of choice is that? You know, Mm. it's it's just terrible. It is truly terrible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's so impractical, like so necessary, but so impractical. I think that people with the best of circumstances, even if you live close to the hospital and have financial flexibility and your partner can take time off and all of the things, it's like, it is still extremely taxing to be a NICU family, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's just a different, it's just such a different reality. I mean, even like our son was in for 40 days and we were, I mean, to your point earlier, we were at like the height of cold and flu season. And I remember in San Diego, like in 2016, it was like one of the worst flu seasons they'd had on record. And so the NICU, thank God had a rule that if you, if you had any sort of illness, you needed to be like sickness free for at least seven days. And so I remember like, it just killed my dad. Like it was his, it's his first and only grandson. And it absolutely killed my dad because he was so sick Mm -hmm. in February and he could not come in. I was like, look, dad, I know, I know you want to come and see your son. I know he's your first grandbaby. I know how important this is to you, but like, you cannot come see him if you're ill. Like it's not, it is a detriment to his life and to the other babies that are in this NICU. Like you cannot. And like, my dad is so stubborn. Mm -hmm. And so I remember like feeling just like, I have to convince him that this, it's just not worth it. Like, like he's, he's going to be okay. Like, and I was a little bit telling myself that, you know, at the same time, like he's going to be okay. He's going to come home eventually, but like, it's so imperative for you to be well before you come in there. And like, yeah. So when we, we were 40 days in the NICU and we had three visitors in the 40 days because people were just sick and it just wasn't safe. Right. So then you're lonely too. You know, you can't get the support from your community that you might be able to get if, if things are different. Oh man. Yeah. It's really, really challenging. So you get home, you're kind of, you know, it takes, takes some time to get settled. When do you feel like you had a moment where you just like took a deep breath and looked at your son and you're like, we're okay. We're going to be okay. Oh my gosh. Um, gosh, I don't know if I ever, I don't know if I ever felt like that. I mean, it, like, I think after you go through something, I mean, it was like, it was something like 75 days, you know, of like hospital, hospital stay, like that we had between myself and, and our son and the And like, I just think we always, I mean, maybe it was even like when he was a year old. I mean, honestly, like I never felt I never felt like really comfortable even after we came home. I mean, so the reason he was in NICU for so long was because he had, um, he had breathing problems and it, and there's, there's like a list of three things that, that, um, a baby has to do to be discharged from NICU, at least from our hospital, which is like maintain body weight, um, breathe successfully on their own and, um, and feed. And he had, he didn't, he quickly was able to maintain body weight. 
I mean, in the grand scheme of things, and he was able to feed relatively early. Um, but the breathing thing was really hard and it was because he was a 32 weeker and his lungs just weren't, weren't developed. So he would have these like bouts of apnea where he would literally like stop breathing. And it was like, it was just the worst thing because not only could I like see him and like physically see like his lips turning blue and like him just like choking and gasping for air. But then like, he's obviously like connected to all of these machines that would just like absolutely go bananas and Mm -hmm. and like all the beeps would go off and so it was almost like I mean this like terrible like PTSD thing of like hearing these like beeps every time he would go into one of these fits and and I remember it was it was something like he had to be apnea free or like they called it like events he had to be free of events for like I think it was like five days like it wasn't long. And so I remember again, like them discharging him and me kind of like saying to, to the NICU specialist, I was like, are you like, are you sure? Like, are you sure we're able to go home? Is this safe? Like, is he going to be okay? Like, what if he has an yeah. event at home? And like, I mean, I, the, the hospital that I was at is one of the, one of the largest, has one of the largest NICU, NICUs in all of the state of California. And so they're, they're really prepared and well versed in dealing with this, but like no amount of like statistic or anything is like going to like calm your nerves of yeah. like, I've experienced 34 days of like my son having problems breathing. And then suddenly he's like five days, five days right. good. And you guys are just like, here you go. Okay. Take him home. Yeah. Like, you know, so I think, well, and especially when you have been so connected to data, totally. I think that that is something that when I, I totally hear in your story and also just in taking care of women, like your entire pregnancy, you were connected to data about his well-being. It was all about the monitoring. And then you live in the NICU for so long where all of the data is what is most important. And it is literally like you said. And then one day they're like, he's fine. You, he'll, you can just take him home. And you're like, um, no, I have no data. <laughs> yeah, like, how, how do I know that my baby is well? I have had literally 24-7... <laughs> like scientific proof and, and people well. and professionals to interpret <laughs> the data, not just data, yeah. like of professionals course, to interpret yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And now you're just going to send me home and I'm just going to believe that he's going to be fine. And yesterday it was a no and today's a yes. And, yeah. and I think that I think all families go through that to some extent, you know, it's like that whole, they let you, they help you put the baby in the car seat. And then you're like, wait, now we just take it home and you like, let us keep it. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, so much more to that extent, you know, with that story, that journey that you've had. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So Kate, tell us how this kind of evolved into, into the work that you do now. I know that you offer some really, really cool things through your company, the Noble Papery. And I know that it's really born from, or at least a portion of it is born from your experiences um, of loss and dealing with a difficult pregnancy and, and, you know, NICU stay. So tell us how that kind of came to be. Yeah. So, um, actually when I went through, um, my miscarriage and, and the DNC, I had actually a really bad experience at, um, the hospital that would then later become my home for like, you know, a third of a third of a year. Um, I, they were doing some renovations. And so when I was done with, um, done with my DNC, I was taken into recovery. And at the time, like, because there was so much construction going on in the hospital, I was in like a big giant room that was separated by these like, you know, 
pull curtains. And so I was actually in recovery with C-section moms. And so the first thing I heard when I woke up was like, baby's crying, which is like just the most horrific thing that you can even think of, of like, okay, I've just had this surgery to literally remove my dead child. And the first thing that I have to listen to upon coming out of anesthesia is like the cries of other children that like their mothers have had successful births. Like it was just Mm. horrible. And so Mm -hmm. I remember finally feeling comfortable enough to tell um, like somebody else other than like just my husband about our experience. And so I told I told a family friend who actually was the um, friend who came and read the children's book to me. She's just, she's incredible. But so after all of that um, happened, I shared, you know, the story of our loss and, and kind of the the poor experience I had at the hospital. And she was really like, I mean, she's a, she's a teacher, but not only that, she's an art teacher. And so she's, she's really creative. And so she said, you know, you are such a creative and artistic person. She's like, I think, there's a couple of things that you should do. Um, she said, one, I think you should write to the hospital and tell them of your experience because at that point you're then going to just be helping other mothers that are going through this and not have the same, same experience. And also it's just going to end up giving you closure, um, you know, to your situation and to your grief. And she said, and the other thing I would like highly recommend you do is to do some, some art form, in relation to your loss. She's like, I think the creative outlet and that process of kind of getting your emotions and your feelings out in whatever like creative way that is, if it's like drawing or painting or music or, or anything cooking, even, you know, like having a creative place to kind of channel your grief and your frustrations during your loss is like really important. And so, you know, I kind of like molded over in my head for a little while and then came up with this idea. I'm, I'm, I'm an artist, like first and foremost, but I think by trade, I'm a, I'm a graphic designer. And so I was, you know, doing a lot of Googling and researching. And at the time I was like, there are no cards for women who have experienced miscarriage. Like it's all of these, you know, with sincerity and with sympathies, you know, like messages with a, with a stupid flower on the card. And it's like, okay, well, thanks for giving me a card. I appreciate that. But like, really the sentiment of that is completely wrong. Like I've just lost my child. I don't need a card that says with sympathy, like that's, it's just so cold and unfeeling. And like, even if the person giving it to you has like the best intentions in their heart, like it's not their fault that they didn't have another option out there to like Mm -hmm. give you. And so I kind of was like, you know what, like maybe I should just like design some greeting cards that like are going to help, help people. And, and will kind of give me that creative outlet and also be something that's going to end up helping other women kind of get through their grief. Like I know I personally would have loved like some specific, a specific miscarriage card um, during that trauma. And so my initial plan was like, okay, well, I'm just going to like design these six cards and call it a day. And then I designed them and launched them and didn't really think much of it. And then there was just like this huge influx of people being like, these are amazing. This is so necessary. Like, where have you been all my life? And I was just kind of like blown away and shocked that there was like this whole community that just like sprung up around me and supported me and was like, Hey, this is so needed. And this is so necessary and like, keep doing it. 
And so I kind of almost just like fell into this like greeting card and stationary like industry a little bit like externally by chance. Like it didn't, I didn't even mean to. Yeah. And, um, and so since then I also have created greeting cards specifically for, um, NICU families, because again, like there were just, there was no card when we were in NICU for the things that we went through. Like I would have really loved a card that was like specific to thanking our nurses Mm -hmm. that like literally cared for my child around the clock. Um, you know, like that card just didn't exist. So I was like, you know what, Mm -hmm. I'm going to make one. And, and so, you know, and even like the day that you're released from a hospital, like with your baby is like such a magnificent and important day that I think so many of us like take for granted. If you just have a term pregnancy, like, you know, and then, and then you go home, it's like, yay, we're going home. It's a big day. But like, actually when you've been in NICU for like 34 days and your and your nurse comes in and tells you, Hey, today is discharge day. You get to take your baby home. It is like, I mean, I don't know. I can't think of another day where I've had so much Mm. joy, like apart from maybe my wedding, like, you know, it, it is just, it's an event in and of itself. And so I thought, you know, maybe there's a, there's a need for a card for that day of like spending, you're spending so much time in the NICU and then having a card to give someone to be like, Hey, you made it. Like, this is so important. This is such a big milestone. Like, congratulations. That's amazing. Um, so, so that's kind of how it started. And, and I just, I built upon my experiences and what, what I went through in terms of like our miscarriage and my experience at the hospital. And I've even, I I met, um, and this sounds like so sad, but we had, we had group when I was on, um, the high risk floor. And so they would like, it was my like one time a week where I would get to leave my hospital room and they would wheel me out in my wheelchair with a bunch of other, you know, pregnant bed rest, bedridden women. And we would like sit in a, you know, sit in a conference room and chat. And so there were a lot of women who were there and were, um, you know, had experienced infertility. And so therefore just in general tend to have more higher risk pregnancies when they go through, um, you know, in vitro or, or IUI or anything like that. And so, you know, I got to be really close, um, with a lot of the women on that floor. And again, just found this need for women going through infertility. And so I've, I've definitely like spoken with a lot of my friends and tried to use their experiences to create greeting cards that encompasses an infertility Mm -hmm. as well, because I know that you know, there's just such a need and there are so many women that are struggling with it and it's so common. So I just wanted to, to kind of create these greeting cards that could support women walking through all stages of, of the journey to motherhood, where, wherever they find themselves. Oh, it's so awesome. It's so awesome. So where can people find these cards? Cause I feel like, you know, <laughs> there's so many people listening to the show. Like I, I love that. It's like, there's something for everyone. Like there's infertility and miscarriage, but then, you know, that those would be cards you would get for someone who is experiencing that. But then, like you said, it's like, what do you get for your nurse that's cared for your baby around the clock or, you know, whatever that looks like. So it's really, it's like, it's applicable to anyone. Um, so how do people find these cards? Where can they buy them? 
Yeah, so you can find them on um, my website is just thenoblepapery.com and papery is P-A-P-E-R-I-E. I know it's kind <laughs> of a weird word. Um, and so you can you can go on there and I have um, I have a ton of stuff on there. So we have, you know, our story of kind of what we went through, like in blog posts. Um, there's also greeting card, the greeting cards that I've done for sale. And then I've also started compiling um, what I'm calling like a care library, which is like a library of resources for women or families or or anyone who is walking through the, the season of like miscarriage or infertility. And so there's a whole um, ton of resources that I'm trying to like continually update, be it like podcasts or books or you know, gifts and that sort of thing that you can kind of um, go through to either help yourself or help somebody that you know that's experiencing that. Um, I mean, yes, I, I love our greeting cards, but I, I just think that like this portion in people's lives, like there's so there's so many ways that you can support somebody who's walking through like a season of miscarriage or, a, a you know, some infertility and it doesn't just have to be greeting cards. And so I wanted to try and find like a way to give back and support that community because I would have really loved that. I would have loved to have some of these resources like available to me at my fingertips um, when I was going through it and I just didn't. So, so yeah, there's a ton of, there's a ton of different stuff on there. So um, yeah, you can just find it on Great. our website. Well, we'll share a link to that in our show notes so that people can easily find you and, and find those cards and everything else that you're offering. I love those resources too. Um, Kate, thank you so much for sharing your really, really beautiful story with us. You know, it's been such a challenging road for you and, and it's really evident that it has shaped you in some really important ways. And, And thank you for sharing that with our listeners today. Thank you so much. It's been a complete honor to be here and to speak with both of you. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us, Kate. And everybody, um, you can connect with Kate on Instagram as well at The Noble Papery. We'll have a link to that in the show notes too. And please also connect with us on Instagram if you don't already. That's where a lot of our community interaction and engagement happens. We love to connect with you there. Uh, We share lots of inspirational and educational things as well as just connecting with women. So join us over on Instagram at motherbirth.co. And thanks for listening today. Thank you all. Thanks for listening to Mother Birth. And a special thanks to our editors, sponsors, and guests for this week's show. As always, this show is created by Lauren Melissa and is intended as general information that does not constitute or substitute medical advice of any kind. You should always consult with your primary care provider with respect to your medical care if you are pregnant, planning on becoming pregnant, or in the postpartum period. In this episode, we may use affiliate links to products and services that we know and trust. These are products we have personal experience with and believe that they will benefit our community. When you use these links, Mother Birth receives a small commission. What you pay for the product or service doesn't change at all. It's the same price. If we share something that includes a discount code, we may still receive an affiliate commission without affecting the discount offered to you. Thank you for supporting our show.